The reading of God's word this morning begins in the 11th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Beginning in verse 1. And we'll read chapters 11 and 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from, branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his eyes hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid. And the ox will eat straw like, or the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that, that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind, and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria, from the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Yahweh, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou didst comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in the day you will say, Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise Yahweh in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We'll turn now to the epistle of the Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 3. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order, that, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 25, verses 8 through 14. Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, the church building was uh, quite active yesterday morning. Uh, Grace Bridge was meeting here, and so the team that normally comes to work on that was here, and also the ladies and, and a number of men were here cleaning. So there's a lot of people. It was quite busy. And one of the observations out of that was that, uh, well, some were quite good at it. So some areas of the church were cleaned that might have not been touched, at least in many, many, many years. And because my brother-in-law is in the room next door and he can't hear me, I can throw him under the bus, he made the comment to his wife, after she, she said, wow, you know, some of these ladies are, are very, very good. They're diligent. They work hard. They know where to look. They're good at cleaning. And he said, can, can you be good at cleaning? Isn't that a just-do-it kind of activity? And her response to him was, no. And the reason you don't understand that is because you're not good at it. <laughs> so there is a skillful work that God calls us to. And he, he, he calls us to be devoted in, in our work. And so we're going to discuss that today. It's part of his prayer for us that we would know the will of God we would know it in wisdom, in skill, in understanding, and that out of that knowledge of the will of God applied in wisdom and understanding, we would do good work. If you would bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you. We are your people. We need to hear from you. We need to be built up by your word, to be cut apart where sin is, needs to be removed. We need to be encouraged, exhorted, rebuked, and trained. And so we pray that you would do that, that our Savior who walks among us would speak with the two-edged sword that does, that does your work. Lord, give us ears to hear and lift us up this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would then turn with me again to the epistle to the Colossians. We, we covered the first eight verses last week, and, and just let me remind you that this is a young church that Paul has not met. So it was planted, it seems, by Epaphras, maybe with the help of Philemon, who had, uh, who had met with Paul, uh, maybe in Ephesus, and now Paul is in, in prison with Epaphras, and he's writing this letter because he's heard that this work has begun. He's heard that the word of truth has done a good work. It's borne fruit in the, the town of Colossae, a church has been planted, and there's a people there that 
have the fruit of the Spirit in faith, love, and hope that's bearing fruit and increasing. And so we look then, he begins his letter with a, uh, a prayer of thanksgiving. And the section we'll look at t- today, he's moving then into the petition. So we'll, we'll look at verses, verses 9 through 14. And in this, this petition, it really is one sentence. It's composed of one singular petition, although... Uh, Paul writes in, in a Greek run-on, so it's quite lengthy. Um, but there's, there's one main idea. So let me read just, just that short section Paul says in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So what we're going to look at is the basis for Paul's prayer, so the the context under which he prays, and it's an encouragement to us. This is a model for us, should act as a model for us when we come to pray. The reasons for which Paul prays, how he prays, the continuity with which he prays, whom he prays for, all of those are, are embedded then in this very short context of this petition. And then we'll look at the petition itself proper, the things that Paul prays for, and observe whether our prayer life matches, matches up with the kinds of things that Paul prays for. He's going to challenge us. And then I hope if there's enough time, we'll take this prayer as, as if prayed for ourselves for a test drive and looking at uh, one application of knowing God's will. So that's my goal. I rarely accomplish those. So looking then at verse 9, we, we can jump right in. He's, he says, as he's moved out of his... his uh, prayer of thanksgiving. He's thankful that the gospel has gone forth. It's borne fruit. He's seeing, he's seeing the fruit of what Jesus had promised, and that the the gospel goes forth. It hasn't returned empty or void. And they've heard, and it's been welcomed in faith. And then he says in verse nine, for this reason, for this reason, I'm going to pray. Well, for what reason is it? It's the reason is because he's heard because. He's thankful that God's work has begun. Because the word of truth has borne fruit, because he sees in the church of Colossae faith, hope, and love at work, he's now going to plead with God on their behalf. And even right here, just in the beginning, the reason for which Paul prays is an admonition to us in how we pray. Our tendency is to pray for things in trouble. We, we, we pray when there's trouble afoot. We focus on it. But Paul's prayer, the, the church in Colossae, although he's going to have a warning from them, they're, they're not embroiled in sin. They're a young church. It's filled with hope. He's thankful for them. And out of his, his thanksgiving, he's going to ask, what he's going to ask for is even more of what God has already done. He's, he's going to ask, just keep doing what, what God has done. Produce more fruit. Increase more. And so in thinking, as, as we want to... Learn to pray. And part of what I want to impart to you is that prayer is a skill. It's something you have to work at. We, we live right now in, in an age where prayer is quite haphazard. And I want to look at then what Paul is calling us to. But in this skill, one of the things that we can be guilty of neglecting is praying within this scope. Within, within the scope of, of those that are doing well, praying that God would keep and uphold them and trusting in faith that God calls us into his throne room to plead on behalf of his people and not just those who are in trouble. And through those prayers, God then will bring to completion, to maturity, his people. So if you, you keep your finger there and you flip over to the next chapter, we'll cover this in a few weeks, um, But looking in verse 28, as Paul thinks about his purpose, he says, we proclaim, 
Him, Jesus, admonishing every man, teaching every man in wisdom, every, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete, mature in Christ. So that's his purpose. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to the power which mightily works within you, within me, and I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Well, think about this. Paul hasn't met these people. How is he laboring? How is he wrestling and struggling for people that he's never met? He's never been to this town. He hasn't met them face to face. So how is he laboring to present them complete? Well, the answer is in prayer. He's bringing them before God in prayer, and he says, I struggle, I wrestle on your behalf. For all those who are in Laodicea, chapter 2, verse 1, and for all those who I have not personally, who have not personally seen my face. I'm wrestling in God's presence for this purpose, that their hearts may be, knit to, may be encouraged, having met, been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. And so he's bringing them, them before God with this purpose that they would be made complete, mature. That's what, he, what he's praying for. That's the essence of what he's praying for. And in, in thinking about that, we also have to take note of he's praying for then people he hasn't met, and he's doing so continually. For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So this isn't, isn't just the case where Epaphras brought a report and Paul said, okay, I'll pray for you. And he pulled a one and done. And he, he prayed for him and, and checked the box and says, all right, my duty's done and I'll try to make it there when I can. Instead, these people he's, he's added. And if you flip through Paul's letters, you'll see that this is frequent. He does it for the church in Rome. He's continually praying for them, bringing them before the throne room of God, again, for a church that he has not met. And you look at all the churches that Paul has been to, his, his list of people that he is continually bringing before God's throne room, it's quite lengthy. I want to consider then what it says in verse 9. He says, we have not ceased. Other, other places, as I've been saying it, he says uh, continually. It's a command, pray without ceasing. And... Uh, um, you read around and start thinking about this, and people say, well, obviously it doesn't mean you're always praying. Although some have taken it that way, and thus was born the idea of the breath prayer, where you're kind of breathing in and out, and as you're doing so, you're praying. But the danger in that kind of way of thinking is that you actually never pray. It's the same as thinking about praying, but never getting down to the task of praying. If you, if you consider how Paul talks about praying, it's an a earnest labor, a striving, a struggle, a wrestling. That's not haphazard. It's not done subconsciously, without thought. It's not just a feeling inside of yourself. Instead, he's, he's speaking. He's bringing these people before the throne room of God, and he says, I do it continually, without ceasing. So what can that possibly mean? I want to suggest that there's a meaning embedded in the Old Testament. So if you would, keep your finger there and flip back to Numbers 28. And we'll look at two passages. And the reason I bring this up is I want to encourage us to, to think about how we pray both what we're praying for and then a good model for the frequency of our prayers. So Numbers, um, Numbers 28, we'll look in verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for, for my offerings by fire a soothing, of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to Yahweh, two male lambs, one year old without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at night. You shall also offer an ephah, uh, of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to Yahweh. 
Then the libation with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb in the holy place. You shall pour out a libation of strong drink to Yahweh. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering the morning. As its libation, you shall offer it an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to Yahweh. And so you notice that every day Israel was commanded to take two lambs, one in the morning, one in the evening. And it was called a continual burnt offering. So every day, first in the morning, and then in the evening, so at the, the beginning of the sacrificial day, at the end of the sacrificial day, it was opened then with a burnt offering before Yahweh. And it's called the continual burnt offering. The, the, the fire on which it offers never goes out. And if you keep reading in Numbers 28 and 29, we, we won't do so, you'll find that all the other offerings, so the Sabbaths, the, all the, the Sabbaths that are outlined with their specific offerings, they're all done on top of, in addition to, this daily burnt offering. It's foundational. It's consistent. It's continuing. It does not cease. Uh, then uh, turn with me then um, to Leviticus chapter 6. We'll get an idea of then how it does not cease. Levit Leviticus 6, and we'll look in verse 8. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. And the priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take out the ashes to do which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offering on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is, to, it is not to go out." So this fire is kept always, and in fact, the evening burnt offering would be left on, on the fire all night long. So there's this concept then in which twice a day they offer up this lamb, and the lamb lays on the fire. It's, it's not removed. The other offerings during the day are placed on top of it, and the one at night stays on the altar overnight. So it's always there, always present before God. Now, as many of you may know, that, that burnt offering, the, the actual word is ascension. So it's a, an ascension offering in which you lay your hand on the head of the animal and come then before God and in, in symbol and picture you're rising up to God's throne room in the form of the animal. So the whole, the whole animal is then consumed in smoke and joins the Shekinah glory cloud of God hovering there over the tabernacle or over the temple. And in, in that, the worshiper ascends and has the privilege of bringing before God thanksgiving and prayer. They're, they're laid on top. They become part of that ascension into the presence of God. So I think this is the background behind the reason that, that Paul says, well, without ceasing, continually. It's this idea of every day, and the every day is marked out at least by the beginning and the end. You can say, well, you're being too rigid there. And I'm not going to tell you 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, like, like uh, the, the offering seemed to be offering at the third hour and the ninth hour. But if you go and start looking through the record then of God's people and consider what, what they did, we know Daniel, he prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And it's not that there's no prayer any other time during the day, but he has a set time in which he comes before God. It's planned. And he presents then his prayers before God, not in a breath, not in a thought. He prays. And David, he follows that same model we find from Psalm 50, 55, that he also prays morning, noon, and night. And you say, well, that's, that's just a symbol for kind of any time. But it, it follows then this picture in which you come before God at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, and perhaps in the middle as well. And we find those hours then replicated in, at the cross 
At the third hour, they crucified him in Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, uh, or sixth hour, so noon, darkness came over the land. And at the ninth hour, Christ died. He cried out to God in that final prayer, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. There's a principle there embedded for us. We're free, but we learn, we learn from the command of God. It's, it's didactic. It teaches us how to live. And how to, how to live well, we come before God and we, can, we come day in and day out. And I would suggest it's a good idea to model our prayer life then after this, that in the morning and the evening, and many of you probably, probably do this already, although maybe not knowing the background for it, but we begin and we end our day at the throne room of God. And so I think that's what Paul means when he says without ceasing. He means every day I'm coming before God, morning and evening, and I'm praying for you. As I mentioned, his, his list is quite long. So Paul sees this prayer then as an extension and a participation in God's work that's going on at the church in Colossae. So God has produced this work there. He's bearing fruit through the word of truth, the gospel. They heard it as soon as they, as, as soon as they, they heard this, this word of truth. It bore fruit in them that fruit of love, faith, and hope, and it's expanding, it's increasing. And so Paul, he sees that, and he, he, uh, he's mirroring then the language of thanksgiving. When you heard of it, this is what happened. When I heard of your, your faith, then my response is I, I bring you before God all the more. So because, because this seed has been planted, because God has borne the first fruit, I'm going to ask God now every day, bear more, bear more, bear more grow it, increase it, make this plant grow. And he's earnest in his labor. He sees that he is, um, he's on the hook. He's responsible for urging this growth on. He's struggling with God that, that they would be brought through to the end, that their first faith would not be in vain, and his prayer is essential to that. Although we all know this, God calls us to pray, we, we're frequently culpable of forgetting that God, He both listens to our prayers and He uses them. He, he hears and He acts. And I, I want you to think then through this prayer, we're often encouraged to pray very specifically, and we should. But that specificity isn't apart from the grand goal of God's plan. So if you read this prayer, you could pray it for anybody. He's praying it specifically for the Colossians. But it's not because they, they're embroiled in sin or have a broken leg. Those are good things to pray for. But it's because he sees the fullness of God's plan and he wants it. He wants it brought to fruition. So Day in and day out, he's bringing this church, and you look through the list, he's bringing all kinds of groups of people before God's throne room, asking God to finish the work, make it grow. So there's principles then. We pray continually, without ceasing. We pray as a participant, a sharer in the work of the gospel, so that there's this mirror image of the, the word of the gospel going out, and we'll see that its work, even in the prayer, is to bear fruit and increase. It's the same language used again in verse 10. And our prayers then produce that good work. Now, if we would, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look at the outline of this prayer. So I want to read it one more time, and then I'll give you the structure of this sentence. So Paul prays, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the, fullness, with, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So this is the outline. He asks, and the, the, the singular petition here is that the church in Colossae, this group of people, would be filled with the knowledge of his will. So that's, that's the fundamental idea. He's, he says, before God, this is what I'm asking for. You notice he tells them he's asking, and then he tells them what he's asking for. He wants them to be aware of his prayer. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. We all want this. We want to know God's will. That will that he's praying for is his revealed will in his word. I'm, I'm just going to say that. I, I want to look behind this language in just a minute and see uh, there's a picture of where he's coming from. But God has told us what he wants. And he wants the believers there to be filled with the knowledge of that will. So if you, if you read your Bible, you'll find statements like Paul makes in, uh, in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. Be filled with, with the knowledge of that will. This is what God wants for you. Abstain from sexual immorality. Keep yourself pure. Or uh, a few verses later, he says, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. This is the will of God. Well, now you know it. You're culpable. You know the will of God. Be filled up with that will of God. But specifically, he says, he wants them to be filled, and that's going to be a pregnant word in the epistle to the Colossians. He uses it all the time, this word pleru, filling. He's going to talk about it with, with Jesus. It's going to bring to us the picture of God filling the temple of his people. But here he says he wants us to be filled up with the knowledge of his will and specifically then in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, that's a, a dependent clause. So how are we filled? We're filled in spiritual wisdom and understanding for the purpose of, verse 10, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord so that we may please him in every respect. So you have dependent clause, dependent clause, dependent clause. Why are we filled with the knowledge of God's will? Ultimately so that we would please him. And then he gives us a, uh, four, um, four aspects in which the will, knowledge of the will of, of, of God works itself out into pleasing him. The first of those is bearing fruit in every good work. The second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Same word. Third, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And then fourth, joyously giving thanks to the Father. And then there's three reasons why we joyously give thanks. So that's the structure. We have the petition, be filled with the knowledge of his will. How? In spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And how do we do that? By bearing fruit, by increasing in the knowledge of, of God, by being strengthened with power for the attaining of endurance and steadfastness and by giving thanks joyously because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and because we have redemption in the forgiveness of our sins. So that's the structure. Now we're going to work, work through this. And the first part of, of this prayer, then, the, the essence of the petition, that you may be filled with knowledge, the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It sounds like three words that are very, very similar. He's praying for the church, that you would know his will and that you would know it in spirit-given wisdom and spirit-given understanding. What's the distinction among those words? If you would, um, turn with me and turn with me to Exodus 35. Keep your finger in Colossians. We won't stick around here very long. Exodus 35, and we'll look in verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all work 
to make designs for working in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood so as to perform in every work. He is put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver, of a designer, an embroiderer in blue, in purple, in scarlet material, in fine linen, and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful, skillful person in whom Yahweh has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom Yahweh had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work and to do it. So you should hear then the, the echo in Paul. He prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of God in spiritual, spirit-given wisdom and spiritual understanding. And here, as the people of Israel exit the land of Egypt, he calls them to Mount Sinai and he says, gather to yourself these people because God has filled them with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in work. And he's done it for doing a good work. So he gathers these people together. He says God has, God has placed his spirit within them. Now in chapter 36, verse 1, I read that to you. Bezalel and Aholiab, along with the host of skillful people, are gathered together in there to do this work in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. So I told you that the knowledge of the will of God is, is not the unknowable. It's not secret. This is what is revealed, the revealed will of the Lord. So God laid, for, uh, laid out uh, for these men the blueprints of what he wanted done. You can read about it. He gave, he gave the dimensions of the furniture in the tabernacle. He gave the specifics of the, the kinds of animal skins, what he wanted it to look like. And so the, the knowledge of the will of God, you can see there, he's given a blueprint for design. And he calls these, these men together. He says, I've put my spirit in you for this purpose, in wisdom and understanding so that you can do this work. So to, for, for us, he prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spirit-given wisdom, spirit-given understanding. Well, what does that mean? If the knowledge of his will is the blueprint that he's given us, so it's the commands that he's given us, this is, this is what God wants you to do. Abstain from fleshly immorality. Pray without ceasing. This is the will of, of the Lord. And, of course, we have many, 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 many other things to consider there. But it must be done in spiritual wisdom and understanding. The, the word wisdom, as as translated in Exodus, is skill. So there, there's two parts to this then, in spirit-given wisdom and spirit-given understanding. Once you have the blueprints, you have to have the eyes to see what needs to be done. You have to have understanding. So you think about a construction site, and it doesn't matter so much here, but in Minnesota, you've got to consider when you're going to do what you're doing. If you're, if you're planning on uh, building in the winter, you, you better watch out because it's going to take a lot of work to dig through that frozen concrete. And so you lay out the stages of your construction in understanding. So you see the whole landscape of what God is doing, what he's supplied, and then you have to put those blueprints into action. And so we think about then the knowledge of the will of God given to us we have, to, we have to have it paired with spiritual understanding, eyes to see, that all, all of what God calls us to, there's specific commands, but they don't just live themselves out. We have to apply them. We have to apply them with eyes of where there's trouble, where there's need, where, where, where you need to focus, when you need to focus. And then the application has to be done in skill. It doesn't, it doesn't work if you have no skill. So you can have the blueprints and you can have the eyes to see what needs to be done, but if you do it without skill, the building will crumble. 
I, I brought this passage to bear, but these, these words, so the filling of the Spirit and the knowledge of, in the knowledge, in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, they appear together only there in Exodus, in Exodus 31, in Exodus 35, and in 1 Kings 7. And then to a lesser degree in Isaiah chapter 11 that Hyde read, read for us this morning. And in each context, it has to do with the building of God's house. God sets apart people for himself, fills them with the Spirit, gives them the blueprints, the knowledge of his will, and then uh, applies the Spirit and wisdom and understanding for them to get to work. And it's for the purpose of doing good work. So if you keep reading in the Exodus story, they, they work and they build, and then Moses comes to review it, and he says it's done just as the Lord has commanded. And so consider then what Paul is praying for. He's praying for this church that has heard the word of truth, the gospel. They have faith, love, and hope, the beginnings of them. It's borne fruit in them, and it's increasing. And now, he says, because of that, because this foundation is there, this is what needs to be done. This is what he's asking God for. Fill them up. Make them ready workers to build your house. And that's the context in which we should be thinking then, is building up the house of God based on his blueprints, but with the blueprints, we need knowledge and understanding to apply them. You can't take the Bible and thump it over somebody's head, and then they'll build well. It takes practice and discernment and eyes to see and rebuke and exhortation and encouragement and training so that we will be skillful builders on God's house. And, and that building then Looking, uh, we're going to skip down to the first, the first effect. That building then is done in bearing fruit in every good work. So the skillful application of the knowledge of the will of God comes out of us in born fruit of good work. So this this. Uh, We'll come back to the bearing fruit and increasing in just a second. But the good work, you can see it clearly in the tabernacle and the temple. The building is erected. It's done as God commanded. It's steady. It's sure. It's founded. It's done in a timely fashion. And then God comes to fill not just the builders, but to fill the house. And so there's an expansion, an increase of God's filling of the nation of Israel. And that's what Paul is praying for. He says, build them up so that they'll be builders so the house will grow and God will fill it. And in the end, then, the born fruit and the increasing will fill the whole earth as we prayed for in Genesis, or God commanded us in Genesis 1.28. So the very knowledge of the will is the, uh, of the will of God, God's will is that we would bear fruit, increase, multiply, subdue, and rule over the earth. The knowledge of that will then is applied in wisdom and understanding to look towards that goal and to begin building. And as we do, God fills. He gives the Spirit he gives more wisdom. He gives more understanding. And the work is good. And I want to consider then just briefly that word, that phrase, good, good work. It's, it's a Pauline phrase. You see it all throughout his letters. And, and it's particularly um, up front and center in, in his epistle to Titus. But consider, what is good work? What's the, the basis for it? Well, the, the, the basis goes back also to Genesis. God commanded, he made, he built, and then he reviewed, and it was good. God calls us through the knowledge of his will, through his blueprints, having learned the basics, to apply in wisdom and understanding and to build like he built, and then look at it, and it ought to be good work. I skip verse 10. This is done. This building work is done in spiritual wisdom and understanding for this purpose, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He picks this, this up in chapter 2, verse 6 the beginning of his admonition section. So the very thing he's praying for, he's now going to admonish 
the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 6. As, therefore, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as you've been given the knowledge of the will of God, now walk in it. For this reason, since the day we heard of your faith, love, and hope, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. As you receive Christ Jesus, as you've received the word of truth, the gospel that speaks to us of who Christ is, now be careful to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So if you bring forward this picture of the tabernacle temple idea, and we're going to see that this, although there's no quotations, there's allusions all over the epistle to it. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means a manner that's worthy of entering that temple. So clean walking. So in, in chapter, chapter 3 and verse 6 and 7, he's reviewed a list of their previous their previous activities, he says it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living them, but now. Now you're different. You've received Christ, and so as you received him, as you know him, so walk in him. And it's for this purpose, back to chapter 1, verse 10, so that we might please him in every respect. So the goal is to be pleasing to God. It's the word that's used in the New Testament. It's a relational word. Wives try to please their husbands. Husbands try to please their wives. Children try to please their parents. We want to please the Lord by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he, he adds then this modifier, in all respects. You'll see that word duplicated again and again and again here in chapter 1. So we're to be filled with the knowledge of his will in in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're to please him in all respects. We're to be, in verse 11, strengthened with all power for the attaining of all steadfastness, to do every good, every good work. Every and all are the same, same Greek word. So it's, it's all-encompassing. Paul, Paul's praying that, and he tells us this prayer so, so that we would, we would look to see this fruit developed in our, our lives. It's, it's completely inclusive. It's overwhelming. He wants you to know everything, to be filled with all spiritual wisdom, to do every good work, to please the Lord in every respect without anything held back. And this will be important in his warning to the Colossians in that he's telling them, you have this. You have entry right now. You've received Christ you're capable to build on this temple. You're made worthy already. You've been qualified, as we'll see in verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's simultaneously praying that they would walk in a manner worthy to come in and saying, you've already been made qualified to come in. And that's our position today, isn't it? We enter into the house of God based on the blood of the Lamb, and we're encouraged, now keep walking in a manner worthy of your entering. Live the life that God has made you for, that he's called you to, in spiritual wisdom and understanding, put it to work. Now, I said that there was four aspects of that, that uh, walking in a manner worthy of God and, and pleasing him in every respect. The first of those we discussed generally, bearing fruit in every good work. It's, it's modeled then after God's good, good work. The knowledge of God's will must issue forth in good works. We studied in James, faith without works is dead. When you come to the law, the law commands mercy, so if the one who does not have mercy is condemned by the law itself, he won't make it to the end. God calls us then to good works. Now, those good works, they, they multiply into all kinds of areas of our lives. Paul is going to call us to some specifics here in the epistle to the Colossians, and we'll look specifically at those. But we need to consider, consider Ephesians chapter 2, 9 and 10, that God designed before foundations of the earth. He chose us for this purpose. He designed for us good works so that we should walk in them. And he made us fit and ready to do so. So 
God has placed each one of us then in a path filled with good works to do. He's placed us together as, as his body in the temple that's being built to do good works modeled after him. So the, the building, the building is, is built up through good work. It's composed of people that shine forth with good work, but then that good work itself bears fruit. So notice the next phrase. He, we bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. You should notice first off that in verse 10, that bearing fruit and increasing, that's again Genesis 1.28 language. So we are, are to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply, just as he said has already happened in them in, in chapter 1, verse 6. The gospel has come to them, it's borne fruit, and it's multiplying. Even so, we are to bear fruit in good works, and then multiplication happens in the knowledge of God. It's the same word, epinosis, for the knowledge of God. He, wa he wants us as, as in knowing the will of God. But notice here that first, he prays that they would know the will of God and that that will would bear fruit, that knowing that will in spiritual wisdom and understanding would bear fruit in good works and that in the bearing fruit in good works, we would then increase in the knowledge of God. There's a, a slight change there. It's still knowledge, but in in the skillful application of the will of God, we then, part of the fruit of doing the good work is growing, increasing in the knowledge, now not just of the will of God, but the person of God himself. So God gives his command, he gives his blueprints, we know the will, and then in the doing of that will, we come to know the person of God. And there's this... Um, spiral in which we work and we grow in knowledge, we bear good fruit and we go, grow in knowledge. I don't, I don't remember who was discussing this idea, but if, if you find that God's word is dead and dry, consider whether you're doing it. Are you bearing fruit in the knowledge of God? You'll find that frequently... Uh, I've had people come to me and ask, ask, how do you figure out God's will? Of course, God has told us what to do, and they're, they're thinking about how to buy a house, what school to go to, who to marry. But even while asking what God's will might be in these circumstances, they're not obeying the will that God has already told them. And what kind of folly is it to come before God and say, I, 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 I want to know your will when you're already saying, God, I, I don't want to do your will. He's not going to grant that request. And so the knowledge of the will of God must bear fruit in good works. And we'll find in, uh, we're, we're not going to hunt them down, but God places them within us. He gives us desires, skill, ability to put our hand to the plow and work. And that work, by the way, is not an effect of the curse. This was before sin. God calls us, he made us to work. So that's the second one. We bear fruit in good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And then he prays that the church there, and we pray then for one another, that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So building on top of this, good, the, the bearing of fruit in good works, increasing in the knowledge of God, the prayer is that we would be strengthened. And I, I think these, these are cumulative. The strengthening here is the word uh, dunamos, and, and the power is the same, same root word. So we would be powered with power, strengthened with, strengthened with strength that comes from God. And the part that we, we sometimes miss, then he's praying for strength, and it's in accordance with the glory of God. So he's praying that God's glory would be so impressed on us that we would be filled with the knowledge of him. It would be multiplying, increasing, and that he would fill us with his spirit so that we would be strengthened, but strengthened with his glory placed upon us for a specific purpose, for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. Probably wouldn't be at the top of our list if we're thinking about we need the power of the almighty creator God dwelling within us for this purpose so that we would attain steadfastness and patience. They seem rather mundane qualities. But think then again about these building projects and what God is, is, is doing 
He's calling us to, in, in good works, to have delayed gratification, to endure through to the end. So we're grabbing a hold of the end, the hope that God has fixed on us. You can find in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we wear that hope on our heads, just like the high priest wore the helmet that said, Holy to the Lord, and we enter into God's presence, bearing faith and love on our, our breastplate like the Urim and the Thummim before God. It's, it's the filter by which we make decisions, and we're filled with the power of God so that we will endure. We'll press on to the very end so that the whole earth will be filled, multiplied, increased, and the name of Yahweh will be made great. And so we endure through every trouble. We're patient with every troublesome person for this purpose so that we might see that fruit increase and grow, increase and grow, increase and grow until God's command to us is fulfilled. And then finally, on top of all of this, he calls us to joyously give thanks. That's only possible after the strengthening with strength so that we would have endurance and patience. You'll find that if you do not possess the qualities of endurance and patience, you will not be able to joyously give thanks. You may be able to mouth it at times, but just wait for the next storm and you'll find yourself complaining. But if we're filled with the knowledge of his, of his will, we grow, we bear fruit and good works, we increase in the knowledge of God himself, we're strengthened by him to attain to endurance and patience so that nothing, and, and by the way, this is not stoicism. It, it doesn't mean that we just don't think or don't feel, but it means that we hold on to God's good work and he pulls us through every trial, every enduring trouble, so that in the midst of them all, we can joyously give thanks. And I, we'll come back to that. We've studied it in James. It's going to be a theme in the book of Colossians. Uh, but I am running out of time. So he wants us to give thanks, and, and we'll fill out these reasons next week as we, as we look into uh, verses. We'll probably start again at verse 13 and look through, through, look through 23. But the reasons for giving thanks is because he's made us fit. Because he's made us fit to have a share in the inheritance, because he's brought us into this new kingdom, He's caused us to be able to walk, to enter into this, this kingdom, and he's given us redemption for our sins. I told you, uh, I skipped quite a bit, but I, I do want us to think about this, then the, the very thing Paul is praying for. Uh, keep your finger in Colossians and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We, we have a model and I, I mentioned this already, but I want you to read it. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. So pray like me, Paul says. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Right, so Paul gives us, then he says, he's praying for this church. He tells them, I'm praying for you. This is what I'm praying for you. I do it without ceasing. And I want you, I'm praying that you would know the will of God. And we'll find out that, well, this is the will of God. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Rejoice without ceasing. All right, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In all things, give thanks. This is the will of God. So how does that, how does that work itself out? If we take that one application where we say, now, I know this is the will of God that we pray continually. We have a model, we have a command. What does that mean? Well, prayer, as I've said, prayer is a skill. It's something we have to work hard at. Paul says he labors, he strives. It's a participation in the work of the gospel. In Romans chapter 15, he says he wants them to he wants them to come alongside him and to work with him through prayer. And that means for us, we have to, having now known the will of God, get down to the business. We have the Spirit, so get down to the business of growing in skill and understanding. Now, it can't be our skill and understanding, not humanistic, because otherwise we'll do away with prayer altogether. But Spirit-given wisdom, Spirit-given understanding, we know that this is the will of God so we need to take a hold of it and grow in the skill of prayer. Model our prayers after the prayers of the Bible. We have the Psalter, 
150 songs and prayers given to us. We have Paul's prayers. We have David's prayers. We have Daniel's prayers. We need to learn how to pray. Now, for us, our, our prayers tend to be rather myopic in scope. We, we pray, and we pray kind of for ourselves and for those that touch us. And that's a good thing. We need to pray for those people, but we need to grow in the wisdom and understanding to see that prayer is a work of building God's church. And we need then eyes to see the fullness of what God is doing, what he's calling us to, so that we, we pray in skill. God says that he put his spirit within us in Romans chapter 8, and it, it works itself out in groanings. So, so the, the, the Spirit gives us groanings, just like the rest of creation, because we see that all is not as it should be. It's, it's both a redemption work and a work of maturation. We want to see creation redeemed, made clean, brought new. We want to see the new creation brought to fullness. And we want to see then ourselves, mankind, brought both in redemption and towards maturity to all that God has called us to. And we see God has given us a mechanism by which to accomplish this in coming before him in prayer. And so work on it. You gain skill by practice and study. We know the knowledge, we have the knowledge of the will of God. And, and one, of, one of the things I think that we don't often do is as you read through your Bible, there's all kinds of stories in there. You might wonder what all these stories are for, all these narrative work they build out the picture of God's, God's work among us, his will for us. But in the middle of them, what you'll find is that, that God works and we have these stories. And sometimes if you're reading along, you, your expectation of the end of the story is um, at odds with what God does. And so you read something, you read and you read and, and, and you say, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. And there's a practical skill in reading through God's word and seeing how he makes judgments. And wherever our inclination abuts what God does and it's different, we need to grow in skill and understanding. We need to grow our, our ability to see. And so, so there's, there's a work there. You look and study and say, all right, where, where do I need my vision changed? And where do I need my skill shaped and then that works itself out in, in uh, how we decide, how, what we pray for, the kinds of things we're looking for, so that we ought to be growing then in, in our work of prayer, and that, that work of prayer is a good work that pleases the Lord. He gives us the privilege, and when we spurn him by saying that privilege is worthless, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus he, he said, you have access now, full access to the Father, and when we do not come, it's, it's telling Jesus that benefit is of no value to me. As we do that, as we bear fruit in, in the work of prayer, and I think we should find that when we dedicate ourselves to this good work, it will bear fruit in ourselves and in those that we pray for, and it will cause us to increase in our knowledge of God and it will cause us to be filled with strength so that we have endurance in prayer as we come to know the God who's bringing us through to the end, and it must then result in thanksgiving with joy. We'll stop there, and if you would stand with me, and let's come before our Lord and Savior. Father, we first of all want to give you thanks. Lord, although we didn't spend time on them today, we know that you brought us here, that you redeemed us and transferred us into this kingdom. We know that you've made us fit to have our share in light. And we know that it's by your grace we're called your children. And it's particularly by your grace that you give us access to speak with you, to plead and struggle and wrestle with you, to give thanks to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would renew unto us a dedication, a devotion to prayer. We pray that you would make us skilled at it. And, and Lord, help us to be constant 
in our prayer for one another, for our families, for ourselves, and for the churches around us. Lord, help us to be skillful and, uh, and Lord, to devote ourselves in, in a way that's not haphazard, but that, that keeps track and writes down and brings before you all those that, uh, that need your intervention. And Lord, we know that that work in us will only be produced as you grow in us our love for your work and our understanding of what you're calling us to. And so we pray that you would give us the knowledge of your will and as we see it in Scripture, that it would be applied to us, that we would be filled with the spirit of skill and vision to see it through to the end. We give you thanks for your good work, and we pray that you would hear us this morning as we cry out to you. Pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.